Howdy, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I had the pleasure of speaking with one of my favorite living poets, A.M. Juster. Now, if you heard that name and that sounds like a very unique name, that is a pseudonym for a man by the name of Michael James Astrew, who's an American lawyer, and under the pen name of A.M. Juster, he is a poet and a critic. He served as commissioner of the Social Security Administration from 2007 to 2013. He was also the poetry editor of First Things and is now poetry editor of Plow Quarterly. We talk about what it was like to be a poet living in all kinds of political turmoil, his time in the Bush administration. It's really a very interesting interview. And without further ado, meet A.M. Juster. Awesome. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. This week, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with A.M. Juster, the poet of a brand new book coming out September 29th, which by the time this will be live, it'll be past that date. So go and get Wonder and Wrath from Paul Dry Books. Mr. Juster, thank you so much for being on. Thank you. No, I'm excited to be here. Fantastic. So, do you mind telling us about uh, Wonder and Wrath? Uh, you've got it broken up into three parts. Can you sort of introduce us to the book you wrote? Sure. So, it's not a book that started as a concept. It's a book that evolved over a very long period of time. This is my 10th book, but it's only my second book of serious original poetry. I've done a lot of translation, and I've done two humorous books. And... It evolved a bit over time. Um, I really started thinking about it as a book probably in the last three, four years. And after I'd worked on it a little while, I realized it kind of broke into three categories. There are there's translations at the end, um, and I've a lot of those translations that I picked tie in with some of my own poems that you know you spend a lot of time translating. It often gives you ideas and thoughts of some of your own poems. And then I've got a section of more outward poems where I'm observing and looking at the world. And then I've got a second section that's much more inward focused. A little bit of a turn for me. There's a little bit more, I don't want to say confessional, but but work a little bit more in that vein in this book than there was in the uh, the previous book. So, uh, so th- those are the three sections it breaks into. Yeah. So, I'm curious. You mentioned it being a little different from the rest. How, how would you, could you talk a little bit more about that? How would you see Wonder and Wrath in relation to the books of poetry you've written before? It's a couple things. I think in comparison to um, The Secret Language of Women, which won the Richard Wilbur Award in uh, 2002, as a still fairly new formal poet, I was working much more in received forms and probably a little anxious about getting outside that for fear that people would think I didn't know how to do it. Um, and I, so I think that this book is more varied and a little bit more innovative in terms of form, you know, um, altering the rules to try to say something a little bit different. I work a little bit in Anglo-Saxon alliterative meter, in other words, the meter of Beowulf, um, which came again from translating. One of the things I put aside for the moment is I'm, working on a collection of 
poems related to the Phoenix myth. And I've translated for the first time from, the, from Old English, uh, the Old English Phoenix, which is quite long. I think it's about 650 lines. Um, and I just really came to love the rhythms and the sounds of it, which wasn't surprising because I've done a little bit of translating from Middle Welsh, which also has you know, that same sort of banging rhythms and rich alliteration and, and just a texture that's a lot different from a lot of contemporary poetry. So it's, it's a little bit more all over the map in terms of form, which I like. It's probably got a, a few more personal poems, and it's got, it has more poems touching on faith than the first book. And, you know, maybe about half a dozen poems touching more directly on, on faith. What was the book you mentioned won the Richard Wilbur Poetry Award? It's called The Secret Language of Women. And it's named after, I think I've actually probably a quarter of the sales were, were people that got it confused with some self-help book or something like that. But um, <laughs> Were they returned though? I mean... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I hope they, 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 they kept them. But it comes from a long poem, the only long poem I've, I've written, which is almost 400 lines. Goodness. I read a... A newspaper article that got me researching, because I was fascinated by this, that there was a, an actual written language variant of Chinese that had been around for about a thousand years that was about to die out, and the communist government had been trying to weed it out. And then just as it was about to die out, they changed their mind. I guess you know they decided it had tourist value and that kind of thing, and they were trying to, at the last minute, sort of rescue it. And one of the things I discovered is that the mythology about it was that it started as a uh, poem of a courtesan, one of the nobles, uh, the emperor. And I thought that was interesting. But it also, it became a language exclusively of very poor women of the countryside. And so I started thinking about what happened here. You know, how did it get, you know, from the castle to the countryside? And so basically, I just tried to put together sort of a plausible story, respectful of everything that we do know about the language. It's called Nushu, N-U-S-H-U, uh, in case anybody wants to check it out on um, the internet. It's called The Secret Language of Women, basically because it was a secret language of women. You know, they didn't share it with men. It wasn't, you know, particularly well known for a long time that, you know, it even existed, but it did apparently exist for a very, very long time. And I just was fascinated by the story. And since there were details to the story I couldn't find, I just decided finally to create my own and try to fill in the gaps. I feel like maybe just here in the title alone, there's a, there's a large portion of my male audience that was like, maybe that's, maybe the secret's in there. I need to get the book. <laughs> yeah, no, nothing that's going to get a um, uh, a single male more interested necessarily. Oh, man. But, well, uh, that was your pitch. That was the pitch I was going to give. But now, you know, maybe yeah, those, those yeah, sales are good. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, very good. I'm not very good at this whole marketing thing. Yeah. <laughs> we'll edit that part out. Now, you've brought up translation several times. Can you talk about that? I feel like you have an, uh, uh, the amount of languages, I think, exceeded my uh, at least one hand. So... Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> well, you know, I started translation really as an exercise. You know, but almost 30 years ago, I decided to go back to writing poetry. And I had, when I'd taken it seriously in high school and college, I was writing, I think, very imitative free verse. And I got some discouragement from a, uh, 
prominent poet, and and I was a little dissatisfied with my work, so I stopped. You know, I stopped for about a decade. And what got me going is I was working in Washington, and I read a review by the future chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, Dana Joya, of what was then a new book, which was Philip Larkin's Collected. And I loved the review. It made me go out and buy the book. I loved the book. And then I said to myself, you know, this is the poetry I I really loved when I first started loving poetry. I wonder if I can teach myself to write like that. And of course, in those days, there was no internet. You know, shortly thereafter, there was a conference of formal poets and there were more journals and there was kind of a network, but there really wasn't much. So I was reading the texts that were available and and as you know, working on writing prompts and that kind of thing, and I started working on translation really as an exercise. But then I started lining up what I was doing against you know what the famous poets were doing, and I, and I said to myself, well, you know, I think I'm actually holding my own here. And so I started sending them out, and I actually in the beginning was much more successful sending out translations than um, oh, my wow. own poem. Wow! Um, so you know, I first broke into the Formalist, which was a great journal for. 25 years, which I, you know, for me was, you know, kind of the gold standard. I actually got in there first with a number of translations. I didn't get an original poem in there till 95. And then I broke it into a big way because I won the second Howard Nemiroff Sonnet Award oh, wow. with a, a poem called Moscow Zoo uh, that uh, Mona Van Dyne selected for the award. And then after that, I kind of became a regular. But it took me a little while, I mean, it, you know, to hone the craft and be able to walk and chew gum at the same time and, you know, that kind of thing. You know, it took a while. And so I did it originally that way. And then I, you know, I enjoyed doing it. Um, It did open up journals to me that might not be otherwise open. And then at some point I started shooting for the the book length um, translations. And that's gone, you know, extremely well for me. Um, And for a couple of them, I've done scholarly commentaries too, because I really needed to do them in order to translate the work and really understand it well enough. Um, Because I went through a period where I was working on more obscure texts that I thought deserved more attention. St. Oldham's Riddles, which I love, and uh, Maximianus' Elegies, which I think is the most overlooked text of Roman literature. There really wasn't a serious translation in English, and there's only one commentary, and that's a little eccentric from 1900. So now there's an eccentric one from 2018. <laughs> um, but I'm going back now to actually my very first effort where I failed. I, I, I did a, about 25 poems and kind of hit the wall and published those in a small volume, um, which is Petrarch's Cantinieri. And I, I went back with a vengeance late last year, and I'm talking to a major publisher, and I've got about 200 of the 366 poems done now. So I'm hoping, wow. you know, my my goal is to finish that by the end of next year. And if I can do that and do it, you know, at a sufficient level of quality, I think it will it will garner a lot of attention because there really hasn't been a translation of that incredibly important text that has been very satisfactory to most readers. So to get it accurate, get it to be good poetry, and get it in the meter and rhyme, that was, is a huge challenge. Right, um, right. You know, I I spent three and a half days on two lines the other day. Unreal. Um, but, you know, one of the 
<laughs> one of the things about having to take early retirement is now I got to have a little bit more time on my hands <laughs> than I have, you know, historically. So now, so that kind of you saying the amount of time it took you to do those lines, I'm curious. Somebody who I hope we will get to talk more about later in the interview is Richard Wilbur, but he he wants he would talk about when folks would ask how do you write poetry, he would just say I'm the kind of person who can sit down for eight hours and not get a lot done, but sit there and think hard and clearly. You know, are you that kind of person? How how, how is it that you go about writing well, your poems? Well, yes, yes, and no. I've only really found out relatively recently because you know I've had a pretty busy professional life until uh, seven years ago. But yes, now I, I'm probably different in this sense in that I loved Richard Wilbur. I got to know him just a little bit towards the end of his life. I think the last blurb he wrote was for the Old Helm book, which kind of, you know, the, the riddles kind of brought us together because he's the only other person. He translated a I was going to say, well, you know, when I got to that part of your book, I got so excited because I've only seen that name one other time and that was in a Richard Wilbur book. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I'm hoping will come out soon, somehow, um, and it's on my wish list. I actually started to try to prod his publisher and, and then got distracted. But Richard also translated all the riddles of Symphosius. Um, you know, he published a number of them in his various selecteds and collecteds, but I know that he, he, he finished all of them. And wow. I would love to, love to see them you know, out as a separate edition. Right. But um, I am, always imagine Richard. Richard, I think, is was a more centered, peaceful, quiet person than I am. <laughs> I think, I, I, think I, I share his capacity for work. Okay. So I'm putting many days, eight, 10, even 12 hours a day into the Petrarch project these days. But I can't sit still and look at the line. On and on, yeah. I I get twitchy, and so <laughs> I I you know, have that, that to, comes out in your work a little bit. I think I, I think I knew that about you without you saying. Yeah, that. and I have to get up, and you know I've got to take a break. I got to clear my head. So you know I check my email, or I'll allow myself fifteen minutes of online scrabble. And actually, what has been the best thing for me in many ways, <laughs> despite all the aggravations that go with it, is we got our we got another puppy. Uh, <laughs> a year and a half ago, and so puppies need to be walked. Yeah, and so it it the puppy deserves probably a thank you if this book ever comes out because a lot of times when I'm stuck and I've got all I've got my rhyming dictionaries and I've got my thesaurus and I've got my various editions of the text and I've got my Italian dictionary and I've got all this stuff out on the table and I've been looking at it and banging and nothing's happening. It's amazing. A lot of times you just go out, you clear your head. You're not really thinking about it hard, but you can't completely stop thinking about it. Right. Those are often the moments when the answer comes to you. Right. And you come back from the puppy walk and you say, <laughs> yes, I think I've got it. Okay. Well, I know who the dedication is going to already. So there it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So... Just by way of note, I wanted to say that in your proposed cliches, which I enjoyed immensely, I thought maybe a, a great banner for 2020 was your ask not what your country can do for fear of the answer. Yes. Loved it. Yes. I it, love that. And it, and, it, <laughs> and, it, and it rings in a little bore because it rhymes, you know, with the previous, you know, cutlet, couplet, which has uh, cancer and something else um, in it. And, 
Yeah, and it's you know playing on the you know the the famous JFK quote, and of course that's it. Probably people will look at that and think that's a Trump-related poem of the moment, and I probably shouldn't disabuse people of that. Um, that's probably good marketing. Sure, but the truth, the truth is, it's a little bit older than that. And so it goes back to what I said before about translation. So my my one appearance in in Poetry Magazine came uh, with a translation that's in the book. Um, and I believe the first literary translations into English of an East African um, language called Oromo. And it's a project that I kind of started, I started, I think, in 1995. And and I kind of picked at it and, you know, and kept changing it. So it it's some um, at the time I started, actually, I was at it so long that when I started it, Roma was not a written language. It was only an oral language. So the, wow. the raw material came from anthropologists who had collated over 4,000 proverbs, and they would give the literal translation, and then they'd give a phonetic translation so you could get the general sense of the rhythm and the rhyme. Not all of them rhymed, but a lot of the proverbs rhymed. And so there were a lot to choose from, and some of them are terrible. As you know, you would think you go, you know, four thousand proverbs; they're not all great. But there were some <laughs> wonderful ones. Maybe a solid so, thousand, you know, are probably not great. Yeah. And so I picked it up, let it sit, kept changing, adding different. So I toyed with it for about twenty years before I sent it out. And at the last cleanup, I took the book out of the main book out of Widener Library at Harvard again, and then I checked the back of it. And so they've had the book for like. 30 some odd years and I'm still the only person who's ever taken it out. Wow. Um, and so, I mean, you talk about working in something obscure, but I did love it and it did get me thinking about Proverbs and Maximianus has a very, people have noted, has a very proverbial knack. You know, he wrote in couplets and a lot of, particularly the second lines of the couplets have sort of a proverbial feel. And at some point, you know, having just immersed myself in it, I started thinking, that, oh, well, it'd be fun to play around with that. And um, the idea of just sort of twisting familiar phrases so that it doesn't lead you where you, th- think, you think it's going to lead you and makes you think a little differently about the original and that kind of thing. So, you know, that's what I was, was trying to do. But it is fairly typical of Wonder and Wrath in that, you know, there are probably, I haven't counted it up, but there are probably about 10 original poems in that volume that wouldn't exist, but for the fact that I spent time translating something that inspired it. Most of the the translations that were the inspirations are in the book, although maybe not every single one. Okay. Okay. As I considered sort of how to introduce your style to our listeners, um, I thought one great way was introducing your book or talking about your book, The Billy Collins Experience. I've had sort of a through line on on this podcast of of thinking of ways h- how do I give a love of poetry to someone else? Like I found that I'm profoundly bad at that. So I thought if I could have not only poets on but people to introduce other poets, things of that nature, and uh, I somehow through the internet's you know the the that world I found Billy Collins' email, and I just sent him an email, and he was very kind enough to come on for for a little bit of time. So. Basically, you being a formalist and a classicist versus him being, you know, a very uh, comic free verser. You know, if you ever hear his poems live, it sounds like a comedy set of sorts. Could you break down that distinction for folks who maybe not wouldn't know those qualifiers wouldn't mean anything to them? 
what what's the difference as sort of the premise of that book? So Collins and I are different in a couple of ways. Um, I think the main thing is the structure of the poems. So my poems almost always have a metrical st- structure. In other words, um, there's a set pattern of stressed and unstressed syllables. They often, but not always, rhyme. Um, and and I've been doing other things. I've been working internal rhyme a little bit more in patterns into some of my more recent poems and that kind. Of and that's basically stuff that Collins not only rejects but mocks. And this is part of my unhappiness with Billy Collins. Um, and he's aside from pointed comments he's made about people like me. Um, <laughs> he, he did a, a very funny satire on people like me. He created a fake form called the Paradel with a sort of ridiculous repeating pattern um, and gave it sort of a vague medieval history and that kind of thing. And a number of people fell for it, including, you know, most famously, a friend of mine who's a very fine professor of English who didn't realize it was a joke from Billy Collins. Oh. <laughs> um, so I think particularly when he was poet laureate, I mean, the fact that he was very harsh toward I think a very important school of poetry, I, you know, it lowered my opinion of him. And I do like some of his early work. And I think it's very hard to write funny poetry, having tried to do it myself. And I think it's actually harder in free verse, because I think mm. the rhythms of formal poetry, it's much easier to have the momentum for a punchline. And so, you know, I give him, you know, a certain amount of credit, but I also think that he's become formulaic in the second half of his career. And so one of the, the main points of my book, parroting Billy Collins, was to you know, go after those ticks and those recurring um, things. I mean, and, you know, there are a lot of poems that, are, <laughs> that start in the kitchen and, you know, and then go on to rather mundane aspects of his life and then you know, really don't say much of anything at all. So that's, that's you know, there are a number of poems in the Billy Collins experience that you know, follow that pattern. But, you know, at some point, in order to parody someone, if you don't have some affinity for the poet, right. and if the poet's not important, then sort of like, well, you know, what's the point, right? So, you know, it is, I suppose in some way, it's my bizarre, bizarre form of literary criticism. Um, <laughs> and that's, you know. <laughs> so would a broad, very unfair generalization be um, you sort of represent a very um, stuffy, nerdy class of poets versus his hat backwards, baggy jeans side of poets? Yeah, I, I wouldn't fight that too much. <laughs> um, you know, stuffy's a little harsh, maybe, sure. you know. Very broad and fair, though. Occasionally a little stiff, maybe, sure. you know, something sure. like that. Yeah, But yeah, no, that's, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's not unfair. Just as we've been going through this interview, if, if folks are not aware of you or your previous work, you know, some of the things have been, you know, who who the heck is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> Reading, you know, these, these, you know, he's the only guy that's, you know, checked out that book from the library. All, all of a, a very niche collection of works or translations and, like I said, languages that outnumber at least one hand. And they wouldn't be alone in wondering who A.M. Juster is. I went on a similar ride as I kind of tried to get to the bottom of it. And I found that in 2010, First Things uh, put out an article. Let me I see. was outed. 
Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> you were outed. A.M. Juicer, which is a pseudonym, um, if folks haven't uh, gotten that far yet. It, yeah. June of 2010, it was, a, it was an article called, Regard the Scuttlebutt is True. And I imagine that this wasn't necessarily a uh, first things foray into a TMZ sort of hit piece. I imagine <laughs> no. you had a part of that, uh, or at least the decision to let that go. C- can you talk about your pseudonym and who the heck you are? Sure. So there was an attempted hit piece before. So I had been fairly straight up with my regular editors. So Jody Bottom, who was editor of First Things in those days, was desperate to you know write this have this piece written about me and I had put him off for years. But then Same guy that found, wrote same that the Paul is his name Paul Mariani? Yes, Paul Mariani, yes. Okay. So so what happened was, you know, when I was commissioner of the Social Security Administration, there was um <laughs> Which we're just gonna fly by that for the rest of the story, but we'll come back to that. Yeah. The, um one of the three public employee unions is just always hates the administration. It was the same thing when I was working there in the 80s, the same people pretty much. And they have this guy that runs the biggest blog on social security, who's always backing them up and always tearing apart, you know, the senior leadership of the um, uh, administration. So they found out somehow they were looking desperately for dirt on me and they couldn't find anything. (laughs) And somehow in the course of digging for the dirt, they found out about the poetry. So they handed it to this guy who writes the blog, figuring he'd take me apart. And God bless him, he, he didn't really know what to do with it. And so he just sort of reported it in sort of a fairly offhand way. But at that point, Jody said, look, you're out without any context. You've got to let me do this piece. And so I finally said, okay, let's, let's do it. And, it, and it's been wonderful because I've gotten to know Paul Mariani too, just a wonderful scholar and poet and has become a good friend. And um, he lives out in Western Massachusetts, and you know, about once a year, I drive out and have lunch with him. I don't, I'm not doing it this year because of COVID, but most years I go out to the Berkshires and and have lunch with Paul. So before we kind of get more into what you spent the majority of your life doing in terms of uh, your vocation, which wasn't a poet, right. he had this <laughs> this quote from the article: "Michael J. Astrew is the best poet." ever to hold a truly major appointed position in the American government. And A.M. Juster is the best senior civil servant of whom American poetry can boast. (laughs) So you were appointed at one point by President George W. Bush. Yes. To do what exactly? And by the way, so, what a, what a, you should put that somewhere important. I don't know if it's a tombstone worthy quote, but it's, <laughs> it's a great quote. It's a great quote. So... The short version is I basically split my professional career in most of it in two places. I served in senior jobs in the federal government for about 15 years uh, under four presidents, um, three Republican and one Democratic. And, um, and I was also in the biotech industry for 15 years, originally a general counsel at Biogen, which I think at the time was the second largest biotech company in the country. And then I worked at a company called TKT, left, was brought back as CEO to turn it around and and had one of the the better and quickest turnarounds in the history of the industry. So I've kind of done the grand tour of healthcare, welfare, social service programs, disability from different angles. Um, And so that's been most of my niche. 
it was healthcare and social security that brought me to work at HHS in the Reagan administration, um, second term, originally doing, I was a deputy assistant secretary for legislation. And then Margaret Heckler got pushed out and I got moved out to social security and worked directly for the commissioner. Um, and then I went into the White House working at the end of the Reagan administration and um, was briefly ethics officer and then was held over for, for a little while into the Bush administration. And I did her on Contra cleanup for a little while and, and a lot of nominations and legislative work and wrote executive orders and things like that. And then came back. I was nominated to be general counsel of health and human services in 89 and did that job for three and a half years, which also put me on the board that wrote the first regulations of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Then I came back home, parked extremely briefly at a wonderful law firm, but then went across the river and I worked at Biogen for six years from then went to a very small company to a large company selling a really important multiple sclerosis drug. And And then I went to this company that was do, trying to do too much. And what the main thing I did for them when I got there was make the painful decision to stop doing lots of technically interesting stuff and focus <laughs> on what they were doing best and was most valuable, particularly in the short run, which was um, rare diseases, mostly for children. Okay. And we were really, in a lot of ways, this kind of the second or third company in that zone. Genzyme really was the, the pioneer. But, you know, we got some important drugs to market. We, I, I then lost a hostile takeover to a company, British company called Shire. Shire got taken out about a year ago and um, Takeda, a Japanese company, bought them. And Takeda's actually been very nice to me. You know, I hadn't, you know, they, I got locked out of my company when we, we lost to Shire, but Takeda invited me back. I got a very extensive tour, got to meet with a lot of people. It was actually a nice closure event for me. So that's basically been um, my professional career. And, you know, I started writing poetry again in the early 90s. And, you know, it was something that I could do other than just work, and but, you know, still be at home and near the kids and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of what I did when I wasn't working. You know, I, I, don't, I don't have other hobbies. Um, I don't watch a lot of TV. You know, I don't do online gaming and I don't do a lot of the things that take up a lot of people's time. Yeah. Basically, most of my life, you know, I worked really hard in um, my professional life. I've had a fair number of civic activities and, not, you know, nonprofits and charities and stuff too, and read and worked on poetry. I and mean, that's really been my life. As you look back, you, you, so you retired with sort of the workload you've given yourself with poetry now. Do you, is there a part of you that wishes you could go back in the nineties and, and, or even sooner and, and give it a, give it a go as you are now? Yeah. I mean, you always look back and say, I wish back then I knew what I know now, but you know, there's no easy way, you know, to, to write formal poetry. I mean, there are people, I guess, that seem to have had the knack from a very early age, but you know, it takes a while. And I think the fact that I was away from it for a while means that I don't take it for granted. Sure. I think particularly, you know, a lot of people that come out of MFA programs and that kind of becomes their job. I think it, it starts to drain the joy of it from, I actually feel sorry for them. You know, a lot of the time, you know, I was briefly on the board of associated writers and writing programs. So it was mostly 
uh, most of the board was um, professors at uh, MFA programs. And, you know, I mean, some of them were pretty happy, and but, you know, a lot of them really weren't. And I did have the feeling that turning their avocation into their vocation really didn't make them as happy as they thought it would when they made the decision to do that. So I think I've had a nice balance in my life. I think the fact that I've had an interesting professional life has enriched the poetry. I was going to say, <laughs> if J.R.R. Yeah. Tolkien once said, you know, the leaf mold of his mind, you know, as he as he pulled, so came all of the things he wrote, you know, where would your poetry be without, you know, a tumultuous uh, appointment by George W. Bush? We will we'll yeah, never no, know. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's, that's really right, that, you know, the, the various forms of public service and the you know, working in healthcare and, you know, spending a lot of time with seriously sick people, you know, it makes you think about the world differently than if it's all an abstraction and you're, you know, sitting on a college campus and most of the time you're dealing with, you know, healthy, excited young people. And there's positives to that. I mean, I taught one year at Emerson College as an adjunct, taught poetry, you know, just really for fun. And, and, I, and I had fun with it and I enjoyed doing it and probably would like to do it again you know, someday. But, you know, there can be too much of a good thing, too. Um, and I think the fact that I've had an interesting balance in my life has made me a happier person. And I think ultimately, it's, it's made the poetry better because it's different from other people's. And right, right. You know, they're, they're, different, they're different things that I think are important, worthwhile for people to think about. And I think the sense I'm having with this book, Wonder and Wrath, people are picking up on that a lot more than before. They're starting to say, oh, yeah, you know, okay, kind of seeing it now. So, yeah, so I'm excited about that. Shortly ago, a few months ago, I started following you on Twitter and uh, it is a very wholesome, uh, as far as Twitter goes, it's a very wholesome place, your Twitter and and yeah. sort of the, the lanes that you swim in. But one thing that I wanted to note and make sure I asked you about, um, yeah. as I was scrolling one day, I saw a tweet where you had quote tweeted a picture of Robert, Far uh, Robert Frost's farm, and you said, this yeah. is where I teach most summers for three days in June. It's an incredible yeah. kick to advise students in Robert Frost's kitchen, sitting in one of his rocking chairs beside his potbelly stove. I got yeah, to hear more about that. How, tell me about that. Yeah. So, there had been so, sort of one big blowout sort of Woodstock foremost conference that started in 95 with, by uh, Dana Joya and Michael Pike. And then it got very troubled. It had to close down for a year. Um, and then it reopened under sort of new management. It was never really the same. And so there have been a, several sort of attempts of generally smaller conferences to form. And it hasn't gone all that well. But one of the ones that's done well, in part because it just it stayed very small and intimate, is the Frost Farm Conference in Derry, New Hampshire, which a very fine formal poet named Robert Crawford runs. And it's, um, it's a National Park Service site. So it's, the footprint is very small. A lot of the activities happen in a couple of tents that they rent. But they have readings at night in the barn, um, which has got wonderful acoustics. It's just the right size. And you just can kind of feel frost, you know, looking down from the rafters. I mean, it's just, it's quite an experience. And then, you know, for the one-on-one the -on -one meetings, you know, I kind of cut a deal with Bob that, you know, I get the kitchen and, um, <laughs> and, you know, it really is kind of, you know, his pot belly stove and his rocking chair and, and, you know, you just, 
you know, you sit and wait for the next student to come in and you just kind of say to yourself, you know, how wonderful is this? You know? The very coolest. Uh, that's, uh, that was awesome. I double, I took a, I had a double take and, uh, didn't recover very quickly. So <laughs> I'm very jealous. And hopefully, now they had to cancel this year for COVID, but you know, oh, right. fingers crossed, you know, they'll be back, you know, next June. 2021. So, here, here I come. Yeah. They're about, you know, it seems like they're about 14 frost farms. You know, he did sort of wander around New England. But if you're checking this out, make sure you get the right frost farm, which is one in Derry, New Hampshire. Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, check it out on the web. It's, it's, it's a really nice. It's quite reasonably priced. And it really, you know, if you're interested in formal poetry, it's a, it's a great way to spend three days. And hang out with you in the kitchen next to the stove. Yeah, that's right. You've been awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time, especially during a, a hectic time. Do you mind, could I ask you to read a poem that, uh, from Wonder and Wrath? Sure. Why don't I do this one that ran in National Review? And this comes from a trip that my bride and I had been talking about taking for a very long time and then finally did. So we drove around the South um, and we have a son and wonderful daughter-in-law in Northern Virginia. And we went down to Charlottesville and saw Monticello and then visited an old friend in Durham and then went down to Charleston. And we were driving through the back roads by choice in South Carolina. And um, that inspired this poem, which is called Behold. It's also, I'll just note from a technical point of view, there's a poet that you might not think I have a lot in common with named Carl Phillips, who's kind of <laughs> um, the master of syntax. Okay. And, and one of the things I've, I've stolen from him, he's a master of poems with, in one extended sentence to try to hold the reader's attention. And so it's a very interesting technique. I mean, I won't say he's the first to do it, but I didn't really pay attention to it until I started reading Carl Phillips. And um, so this, um, this poem is all in, in one sentence. Behold, let the state highway cleave cold, stubble fields, so that both empty lanes extend like grace, and let prim churches in the ratio of seven Baptists to each Methodist appear with rigid regularity close to the road, their dead even closer, with small, flat, rusting markers on most graves. Then drive another twenty minutes more to see the trees defer to furrowed soil, except for this one rise where pines aspire to reach, where crows and turkey vultures rule. And let those who have nursed the dirt behold the blush and burgundies of morning clouds that do not stifle early rays of sun from blanketing the hillside's eastern slope, where mothers, fathers, aunts and uncles wait and gravestones chalish that unearthly light. I love it. Thank you so much, sir. No, happy to do it. Really appreciate your, your time and attention. Of course, of course. Everybody go get Wonder and Wrath. It's from Paul Dry Books. I'm sure it's available everywhere, including Amazon. And if you want the inside scoop on, you know, things like uh, the Frost Farm Conference, um, I'm over-tweeting at uh, AMJuster. Perfect. At AMJuster on Juster. Twitter. Yeah. I think I was saying Juster. Now, now yeah, I've okay. ruined the whole thing. It doesn't really matter to me. It's 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 it's, it's a pseudonym anyway. I can't get my back up about it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. We'd love to have you back on as soon as possible. Yeah, no, anytime, give a go. You know where to find me now. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Okay. Take care. 